My name is Kenton Thompson, and I'm an elder here at Christ Community Chapel. This is what Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here with us this weekend, whether you're here in the West service, over there watching in the East service, or watching online. Thanks for being with us. Uh, The hosts this morning in all of our services are talking about India Gospel League, which is an amazing church planning ministry in India. But I got to be honest, as one of the church planning team members here, I feel a little threatened by that. You know, they are planting hundreds of churches. We are planting uh, two a year. So I, either we need to step our game up. Maybe I need to travel to India and find out what their secret is. Uh, that's an awesome ministry. But we're very excited about the church planning work that's happening here, and I hope you are too. And I want you to put something on your calendar to, for you to know about a way that you can contribute to church planning, and that is on November 14th, so just a couple Weeks from now, November 14th at 5 p.m. over in East Hall, The Grove, which will be our church plant, Lord willing, next year in Shaker Heights, is doing a preview service. So this is a great way to just show up, give an hour of your time, support them, encourage them by showing up. You're not saying that you live in Shaker or that you're going to be part of the team, although you never know what God will do. But what you're really saying is, hey, we have your back. We love you. We're praying for you. We support you. So I really want to ask you to come. I'll be there. I would love to see you there. And uh, that's November 14th at 5 p.m. over in East Hall. But I'm also very excited about continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. We're calling it 10 Sentences to Change Your Life. We're looking at 10 sentences in this book that kind of capture the essence of the book. And here's what we believe. These sentences are so powerful, the truth they contain, so powerful, that if you and I were to believe them, if we were really to grab hold of them, to lean into them, our lives would radically and dramatically change. And that's what we're hoping to see this fall as we spend a week on each sentence. So if you have a Bible, I would love to ask you to open it up to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. If you have your phone, you can turn that on and scroll to Romans 6, 23. If you're watching online, open up that web browser and Google Romans 6, 23 and have it in front of you as we talk about it. As you're pulling it up or turning towards it, uh, let me give you my outline I'm going to use to kind of make sense of the sentence that's in front of us. Three points and they go like this. I want to talk about the truth about death, the truth about us, and the truth about God. Okay, the truth about death, the truth about us, and the truth about God. All right, let's start with the first one, the truth about death. A couple years ago, I was watching a favorite theologian of mine being interviewed on CNN. I can't remember what the nature of the interview was about, but he was talking about something he had written about biblical Christianity and what the Bible teaches, and uh, the CNN host was kind of asking some questions, and, and you could tell that she was not really buying what the theologian was talking about. And in this moment of vulnerability, she kind of looked at him and said, I cannot believe that you actually believe this, which is a crazy thing for a television host to say, Right. And I remember thinking, I wonder what he's going to say back to that. And, and he, you know, just brilliantly looked at her and said, uh, that's nothing. I believe the son of God lived and died and rose from the dead and is coming back on a white horse in the sky. <laughs> and I say all that to say, like, listen, the Bible is full of radical claims. 
of really big things that if you took them seriously, if you believed them, you'd have to rethink everything. Sometimes, because we've grown up around the church, around the Bible, maybe we've been coming to church for a while, it can become kind of benign for us. We, we lose the fact that it's saying such crazy, sensational, radical things. But it is, and it does, and that was his point. And sometimes those radical things are kind of hiding in plain sight, like in this verse. Because if you've spent any time in the church, I bet you know this verse. This is a very well-known verse. In fact, a person might have shared it with you as part of your becoming a Christian. And because we're so familiar with it, it's really easy to miss this radical thing that it's saying. And what it's saying is that death is not natural. Death is not natural. It's not inevitable. It was never actually supposed to be part of this world. This world is not meant to die. You were not meant to die. You were not made to live for a while and cease to be. You were made to live forever. Death was not supposed to be part of our world. It is not natural. Look at what it says with me. Romans 6, 23. It just reads this way. For the wages of sin is death. Another way of saying that is the consequence of sin is death. The existence of sin leads to death. Now, we're going to talk about the connection between sin and death in my second point. But for now, I just want you to see that, that, that if that's true, then this follows logically as well. If there had not been sin, there would not have been death. It is a fundamental teaching of the Bible and of Christianity that death is not natural. It is not inevitable. In fact, this is one of the main breaking points between the Bible and science. Now, I got to be honest with you. I don't believe that science and Christianity are enemies. And in fact, just a cursory study of history will tell you that that is not the case. That's a lot of hype often more than it is substance. But on this... There is no agreement because what science tells us is that we are fundamentally biological beings, that what's real in the world is biology, physics, chemistry, what's natural, what's material, what can be studied. But what the Bible tells us is that it's not that those things aren't true, it's that they're not fundamentally true. Here's the fundamental truth. You were not meant to die. Death is not natural. It's not inevitable. It's a consequence. Now, you already know this experientially, because if you've been to a funeral, you know that there's nothing natural about how it feels. Now, I have noticed that recently it's become vogue to kind of do away with funerals in favor of celebrations of life. Now, please hear me. I think it's a great thing to celebrate a life. It is a great thing to celebrate the love you had for someone, the love that they gave, the things they accomplished, the, the people that they were. But we increasingly are moving away from a culture that knows how to mourn, that knows how to grieve, that knows how to lament. And that's because science has become for us an end-all, be-all. If all we are are random collections of molecules that are here for a little while and then dissipate into the universe, mourning, lamenting, grieving is in some sense silly. We're mourning and lamenting something inevitable. But can you imagine if somebody got up at a funeral and said that? 
If you're at a funeral for somebody that you loved and they got up and said, listen, I noticed some of you are crying and seem upset, so let me just give you a little biology lesson. You know, they came from the dirt. They're going back to the dirt. This is just, you know, Lion King circle of life. That's all that's happening here. You guys just need to get over it. I I would wonder if that person would experience the circle of life pretty quickly. Right? You'd be angry because you would say, no, 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 no. Something more is happening here. There's something more going on. This isn't just natural. This doesn't feel right. And the Bible says that, yes, you should mourn death. You should lament it. You should get angry. It should feel oppressive. You should want to rage against it. It should bother you because it is an intrusion into the world that was meant to be. It is a consequence. It is not natural. It is not inevitable. This is where science is a wonderful discipline, but an awful worldview. Because it doesn't speak to every part of who we are. And the Bible says, listen, you were not meant to die. You are not fundamentally biology or chemistry or physics. You are more than that. You were not meant to die. We die because of sin. It's not natural. It's not inevitable. And we ought to hate it. We ought to mourn it. We ought to lament it. You might say, well, how did it come to be then? Well, that's my second point, which is to talk about the truth about us. You can see here in the verse that sin and death are interrelated for the Bible, for the wages of sin is death. The consequence, the the paycheck, the inevitable result of sin is death. Let me try to make sense of this for you. It's October 31st, which I realize for some of you means something. In my house, what it really means is that tomorrow is the official first day of listening to Christmas music or watching Christmas movies. Now, you might judge me for that, but just know if it wasn't for me, it would be April 1st at my house, okay? I hold out as long as I'm keeping the horde at bay as best I can. But don't, don't think that means I'm a Grinch, because I'm not. I love Christmas, and of course, I love Christmas for all the obvious reasons. I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe at Christmas something happened that changed the world. It's fundamental to my life and to my faith and to my story. But I also love it for another reason, and that is that it seems to me at Christmas, we are almost always the best version of ourselves. Have you noticed this? I mean, at Christmas, Christmas just has a way of bringing it out in us. We're kinder than we normally are. We're more generous than we normally are. We're more gracious than we normally are. I mean, I notice it when I go to stores or coffee shops, family gatherings. It's just something about Christmas that brings out the best in us, and I like living in that space. I like who I am in that space. I like who you are. I enjoy it so much. Like you, I find myself wondering, why can't we be like this? all the time. Why is it that we limit this to December? Christmas is just so great. But I have learned the answer to why we can't seem to make December last year round. Actually, something that I have come to terms with in my own experience in counseling this year. So I've told you that I have seen a counselor this year. By the way, so many of you have said to me that Knowing that I was doing that was, a helpful, was helpful in helping you to take that step. I'm so glad. And if you're here and you're wavering, don't waver. Go see somebody. Go talk to somebody. But one of the things that I discovered is that so often the things we do that, that are bad, the things we do that, that cause harm, the things we do that, that make the world not be Christmas all the time come from lies we believe. 
That we believe something in our heart or in our heads that isn't true, that isn't good, and we act out of that lie. I've told you this. I've told you that for me, my lie is that I'm alone. That I'm always going to be alone. That people don't really love me. They can't love me. And when I believe that, I act out of that. So at work, what that means is I I go to a meeting and my arms are crossed and I lean back and I have a stern look on my face and everybody in the room is worried that I'm mad at them or they've messed up or the, the meeting is affected by me. And yet in my chair, I'm only thinking about me. I've already decided walking into the meeting that no one there likes me. No one there could ever like me. And so the only thing I can do is protect myself. So my arms go across my chest. I lean back and I put a mean look on my face that says, you couldn't hurt me if you tried. And in that moment, damage is being done to the people I work with, to the culture of the workplace, to me. And that damage is coming from a lie I believe, a lie that I don't tend to believe at Christmas time, but a lie I believe all the other times a lie that has me in counseling. It's interesting when you think about it that way because the gap between Christmas and counseling is actually the story of the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. In the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes Adam and Eve our first parents. And he places them in the Garden of Eden, and it's a, it's a paradise. Not because it's a garden. If you're more of a city person, that's okay. Because he tells them to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to shape and create and to build. He has in mind that they will build community, that they will explore the world, that they will do all the things that make us human, discover and build and innovate and shape. But Eden is a paradise. And it's not a paradise necessarily because it's in a garden. It's in a paradise because of who they believe themselves to be. In fact, the Bible has this great line where it says that Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. Now, that is an amazing verse, not just because it, it speaks to their marriage and their intimacy, although it does, but because to be naked and without shame means they lived without insecurity, that they were totally at peace with who they were. Adam felt good about himself and about Eve, Eve about herself and about Adam. They were totally at peace, totally in harmony. It was Christmas all the time. And, and there was only one rule. And it wasn't even a hard rule. It was, hey, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, you are going to die. So don't do it. And they didn't. Until Genesis chapter 3, when Satan shows up. And when Satan shows up, he comes with a lie. And his lie to them is, hey, you think you're in paradise, but you're actually in prison. You think God is for you, but he's actually against you. You think God wants to bless you, but he actually wants to limit you. And that tree is not an instrument of life. It is, a, it is the key that will unlock the prison. If you eat from the tree, you will be set free. You will be God. You won't need God. He won't be able to limit you anymore. Now, remember, God had told them, if you eat from the tree, you die. But they believed the lie of Satan. And they ate from the tree. And do you know what's fascinating? They did not die right away. Except for that they did. They didn't die biologically right away, but death is more than that. Instead, you can see death all over it. Like, for example, as soon as they eat from the tree, they die 
psychologically. The Bible says that their eyes were open and they realized they were naked and they felt ashamed, so they made clothes for themselves. So the immediate consequence of believing a lie about God is that they believe lies about themselves. All of a sudden, Adam doesn't feel great. Eve doesn't feel great. Consider that even though they were naked, they were only the only two people living in the garden, husband and wife. You would think it's okay to be naked in that context. But they hadn't just experienced psychological death. I don't know who I am anymore. They had experienced relational death. Eve wasn't sure anymore that when Adam looked at her, he thought she was good. Adam wasn't sure anymore that Eve was happy with him. They covered themselves up from themselves, psychological death, and from each other, relational death, and they undergo spiritual death. The Bible says that they heard God coming and they hid from him even though they had no experience that would tell them they needed to hide from God, all of a sudden they weren't sure that God was good. They weren't sure that God was for them. They weren't sure that he could be trusted. You see, the Bible tells us that if the wages of sin is death, death is not just biological. It's psychological. It's relational. It's spiritual. It's only the next chapter that we get actual physical biological death when Cain who believes a lie about himself and about God, murders Abel. So I want you to see that what the Bible is telling us is that we were meant to live forever. We were meant to live in relationship with God. What has caused the disintegration of our universe is we believed a lie. And the lie that we believed is that God cannot be trusted. I've often wondered if I were going to build a paradise and I was God, why would you put a death tree in it? Seems like a fair question, right? And then maybe if there's some kind of contractual obligation, if you build a paradise, you have to put a death tree in it, maybe, then why wouldn't you take the death tree and like put it underwater, guarded by a dragon or something like that, right? So that even if Adam and Eve wanted, they, they couldn't. They couldn't hold their breath long enough. You can't fight a dragon, so they can't get to it. Why does God take that tree and put it right in the middle of the garden? Here's what I believe is his motivation. He is saying, this world is perfect, and what makes it perfect is you trust me. In that moment, God is saying something really powerful, that the fundamental substance of the universe, what holds it together, what makes it work, what makes it tick, what makes it perfect, is that there's a God at the center of the universe who is good and who is loving, who is just, who is merciful, who can be trusted. And every day Adam and Eve walk past that tree, they are saying, we believe that. And it remains paradise. But when the snake comes along and convinces them that God can't be trusted, They sin before they eat the fruit. Because listen to me, sin is not fundamentally something you do. Sin is fundamentally something you believe about God. That he can't be trusted. That he isn't good. That he doesn't love you. That he's not for you. That he wants to limit you. That he's against you. That he wants to inhibit you. And when you believe that, you act out of it. You protect yourself from God. You insert yourself into the role of God. And the result of that always, inevitably, is psychological, relational, spiritual, physical death. The truth is we were never meant to die. Death is not natural. It is not inevitable. But it is a consequence of the lie we believe about God. Now, we were born into that lie. 
We weren't there when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. We were born into a world that was full of death. Our parents were full of death. Our culture is full of death. Our workplace, death is all around us. We are not the cause of all the death we encounter and all the death we experience. That's true. We are victimized by it, but we also participate in it because who here can't say you have problems trusting God? So I want you to see that what the Bible says is that the the fundamental broken part of you and I, that underneath every broken family, every broken marriage, every broken neighborhood, every broken workplace, every broken whatever, that fundamentally behind that, underneath that, you will find, if you think critically enough, if you ask enough questions, if you probe deeply enough, you will find people or a person believing this lie. God is not for me. God does not love me. God is against me. It has been that way from Genesis 3 all the way up until today. The truth about death is it never should have been. The truth about us is we are why it's here. Even if you're here right now and you are struggling in the midst of some dark thing done to you or done by you, It is not the action or actions that are fundamentally the problem. It is this deep-rooted belief that God cannot be trusted. And that belief is sin. And sin always leads to death. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, that leads me to my third point, which is to say the truth about God. Now, if you're paying attention, what would you imagine God would say? What would you imagine God would do? I got to tell you that one of the most hopeful places in all the Bible, and you may have never thought about it this way, is that when Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they don't drop dead right away. That's what they deserve, right? When that doesn't happen, as a reader, you should be going, hmm, hmm, something's going on here, right? Something's going on. You see, if you understand what the Bible is saying about the universe, that there's a good and loving and kind and merciful and just God who made a perfect world, and all he asked is that we trusted him, and all around us was nothing but evidence that he could be trusted, and yet we, we chose to believe he was a liar without any evidence, without any substance, and, and that belief has disintegrated our universe, you would imagine God would destroy us all. But that isn't what he does. The Bible doesn't say, for the wages of sin is death, period. We go back to my own life and the lie I believe about being alone, that I'll always be alone, that I'm unlovable. You know, one of the biggest things of grace in my life is that God has given me a counter narrative to that in the form of my wife, Amy, who's wonderful and loves me very well. Even though she knows, I mean, you think I'm messed up. She knows I'm messed up, okay? And yet she loves me so well. Even this morning, I woke her up from a dead sleep. You know, it's Sunday morning, I get up early, and I wake her up and I say, I can't find my belt. Where is my belt? And she goes, oh, oh, let me help. She gets up, she goes to the closet, she knows right where it is. That's her most annoying trait, by the way. And then then when she should have said, Uh, I'd like to talk to you about responsibility, but I understand you have to preach, so we'll talk about it later. 
right? She looks at me and she goes, is there anything else I can do? And in that moment, I'm like, man, I can't be totally unlovable, right? Because like she has every reason to want to punch me in the face right now. And she isn't. That's a really powerful thing for me. That's really what it takes to overcome a lie, isn't it? Is it? It's some evidence to the contrary, some counter narrative. And I'm telling you, though, the God of the Bible should have, could have, might have just nuked us when we called him a liar and broke his world. Instead, he has given us a counter narrative in the person and life and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the verse says, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death, but the Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want you to understand this because death is more than just one day you die and you cease to breathe. Death is here. Death is here. Death is between us and God, between us and our spouse, between us and our friend, between us and ourselves. So when Jesus comes, he doesn't just bring life in terms of you die and you get back up. He does. We'll get there. But he also brings life into every one of those areas. How does he do that? Well, the first way is he shows us what life looks like. You see, when you read the Gospels and you read the life of Jesus, what you see is that for Jesus, it's Christmas all the time. He is always kind, always generous, always giving. But do you know why? Well, he's the son of God. Yes, but but what else? And the what else is he trusts God. He all the time is saying things like, I say whatever the Father says. I do whatever the Father does. I and the Father are one. He trusts God. So he does not believe the lie. If the first Adam believed the lie, the second Adam does not. That's why when Satan tempts him the same way he tempted Adam and Eve, Jesus says, this is silly. I don't believe this. God is good. That's a loose paraphrase, by the way, on my part. Even the night Jesus is going to be arrested and he prays, is there any other way to do this? He says to the the Father, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. In other words, I trust you. Even when he's crucified on the cross, naked, beaten, mocked, shamed, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you. You see, the difference between Jesus' life and your life is he and my life is that he trusts God and I don't. So he lives the beautiful, natural life I was supposed to live, and I live this artificial, broken life because of believing that lie. But more than that, Jesus doesn't just come to show me what might have been. He goes to the cross. And on the cross, he becomes the embodiment of everything I've believed about God. He becomes, in my place, the one who called God a liar. He becomes the one who didn't trust God. He becomes the one who lived out that distrust. And God punishes him for me. Because after all, what does the verse say? For the wages of sin is death. Jesus on the cross pays the wages of my sin. He dies. And then three days later, he raises from the dead and he says to me, the free gift of God is that if you will find in me reason to trust God, if you will find in me reason to believe that God is good and that God loves you and that God is for you, you too will live, not just by raising from the dead biologically, but your mind, your relationships, your heart, your relationship with God will begin to come alive. In other words, in Genesis 3, Satan shows up and says to Eve, this tree is proof that God doesn't love you. 
But Jesus shows up thousands of years later and says, this tree is proof that he does. Do you see that? And then in his infinite grace, he gives me his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in me. And according to Jesus in the Gospel of John, he reminds me of all that is true so that as those lies, which still live in my head and still live in my heart, you don't, it doesn't take 38 years to put them in and 38 minutes to get them out. But there's another voice. And that voice says, here's what's real. Here's what's true. God loves you. God is for you. God has a plan for you. You can trust him. And as I begin to live out that trust, life begins to come back into all that I am and all that I have now and in the day to come. That's why if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand something. Christianity is not fundamentally about what you do. It is about this simple question, do you trust God? Christianity is about God saying, I know that's hard. So here, here in my son, living and dying and raising and ascending and leading, here is a reason to trust me. So do you. But if you're here and you're a Christian, brother, sister in Christ, listen, the correct response to this is gratitude. That's the challenge for this week. Gratitude. Because gratitude is the celebration of the trustworthiness of God. Gratitude says, I know you can be trusted. Look at what you've done. I know you love me. Look at what you've done. I know I can trust you. Look at who you are. Look at what you've done. I'm so thankful. Do you live in that gratitude, brother or sister in Christ? Listen, I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I can tell you this, regardless of what it is, that the battle that lays underneath it is the battle for trust. And we know that we can trust God because of Jesus. Sin always leads us to death. It always gives us what we deserve. But it is God who freely offers this gift of grace. Know that I love you. Know that I trust you. Know that I'm for you because of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, I feel like I say this every week, but it's the right thing to say. I, I, just, I love that I get to get up here and say such amazing things about you. But you're the one who makes them true. So what an amazing God you are that the things that are left to be said about you are so good. That you're so merciful, so kind, so loving, so just, so forgiving. What an amazing God you are. Help us to see that maybe for the first time right here this morning. Maybe even in our living room watching online. But even if we came in or tuned in knowing, seeing already, Build in us a grateful heart that says, the lie that was destroying me has been proven false by Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.